And I don't know how many languages uh, you speak, but uh, I remember my minister uncle telling me he spoke five languages, English, Irish, Hebrew, Greek, and bad language. <laughs> um, well, there are also five languages of love, and uh, some of you will be familiar with this book by Gary Chapman by that name. It sold over 10 million copies worldwide, and I do warmly commend it to you. In it, uh, Chapman identifies five main ways in which each of us give and receive love. And we do this in varying degrees. Words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. My mother disliked receiving gifts. She was very hard to buy for. Give her something, and her first words would be something like, you shouldn't have, or don't you be wasting your money on me. Have any others come across that? Okay, so it's not entirely uh, unfamiliar. And it was a frustration. Uh, she didn't much like being hugged either, because receiving gifts and physical touch were just not my mother's love languages. Spend time with her, however, or do we jobs around the house? And that was just great. My mum's main love languages were quality time and acts of service. And if any of you here would like to discover what are your primary love languages, and it's a very useful thing both for yourself and also for those you love. You can either do it in a short test online or else you can find it in any of the books which I have specifically ordered and made available for anybody who wishes to have them just at cost price as a Christmas present. And if you don't have the money with you tonight, next week will be just fine. There's this original uh, version which is called Five Love Languages, The Secret to Love That Lasts, but there are also editions, the Five Love Languages Singles Edition, the Five Love Languages of Teenagers, the Five Love Languages of Children, the Five Love Languages for Men, and last but not least, a Teen's Guide to the Five Love Languages. And that's subtitled, How to Understand Yourself and Improve Your Relationships. So uh, there we go. Um, and uh, they're over there if you want to have a look at those after the service. So over these last uh, couple of Sunday nights, we've been thinking about the languages of love as expressed in the Song of Songs. That song Drew told us was a song like no other. Um, not only because it's a celebration of sexuality, but it is also a metaphor of God and his people. And that's why this book is equally relevant for married people and people who are single, because no matter who we are, our ultimate fulfillment and joy rests not in physical pleasure, but in spiritual union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as it says in Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 4, takes us into his banqueting hall, and his banner over me is love. And that leads us very nicely into our Bible reading for this evening that picks up where we left off last Sunday. If you want to turn to page 
681. Uh, we're on Song of Songs chapter 5, uh, and I'll lead in from verse 1, which you may remember is the very central part of this whole book, the climax of the song, where the bridegroom says, um, do you see, beloved, awake, north wind, come south wind, blow in my garden, that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choicest fruits. And then the bridegroom says, chapter 5, verse 1, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And uh, then the friends say, eat, O friends, and drink. Drink your fill, O lovers. And uh, then the bride replies, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my lover is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. And she replies, I've taken off my robe, must I put it on again? I've washed my feet, must I soil them again? My lover thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my lover, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my lover, but my lover had left, he had gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me and bruised me. They took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. O oh, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my lover, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you charge us so? Oh, my lover is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams washed in milk mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rod of gold set with chrysolite. His body is like polished ivory decorated with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my lover. This my friend. O daughters of Jerusalem. Gracious Lord, as we turn to this particular portion of Scripture, which is part of your word, Will you speak to us, please, according to your great love and according to our great need? 
and what we ask is for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, um, what a beautiful thing it is when sexuality is celebrated within the context of the love and security between one man and one woman within the marriage bond. And we saw that last week in chapters 3 and 4 of this song above all songs. But it seems that no sooner has the marriage been consummated in chapter 4, verse 16, uh, but there's a problem I'm not sure if this is meant to be interpreted as a dream or not, but you see in chapter two verse chapter five verse two, the bride becomes aware that her husband is knocking at the door. For some reason he's been away. Now he's back home, and he says, Open to me, my darling. My head is drenched with dew, my head my hair is wet, uh, with the dampness of the night I want to come in beside you. But she's not at all interested. The bride, after all, is tucked up cozy in bed. Uh, maybe she's there with her hot water bottle. Uh, maybe she's got a headache, I don't know. But whatever, the lady's not for turning. And the last thing that she wants at this particular hour is to have his great big cold feet in beside her. Ah, she says... I've already taken off my robe. Uh, Not that it seems problematic, I think, to him. But then she goes on and says, must I put it back on again? I've just had my shower. I've had a pedicure. Must I get up and get my feet all dirty again on the floor? And his expectations and her wishes clash. Does that connect? It's sometimes said that the first year of marriage is the most difficult. Some will agree with that, others not. But the point is this, that adjustment doesn't just happen. Marriage requires consideration and understanding. He's been out at work and comes home late and wants a cuddle. She's been working hard herself. She's made the tea and just wants to relax and read a good book in bed. And there's a collision of expectations. I'll never forget being told by Rob Parsons at our own pre-marriage preparation class that in his opinion, it takes at least seven years before there is sexual compatibility between husband and wife. Now that's not what movies portray, is it? And here, after the pleasure of intimacy, which we were thinking about last week, here we encounter the pain of intimacy, because sooner or later, whether it is over this or something else, there comes a clash, a difference of opinions, a disagreement, a misunderstanding. He wants one thing, verse 4, but by the time she comes round to the idea and seeing his point of view, Um, Verses 5 and 6, he's left, he's gone. And her heart sinks and she starts to panic. She calls out for him, but he does not answer. Verse 7, she goes out to look for him. 
But the people she meet, instead of protecting her, verse 7, they end up abusing her. And perhaps this horrible negative experience caused her to take stock and consider what it is that, in fact, she has and what she would hate to lose if he were no longer part of her life. How come your beloved is better than others, her friends ask. And verses 10 through to 16 is her answer. He's perfect in every way. Um, the commentators indicate that this exchange is more than simply a conversation between human beings, although it is. There is a deeper underlying meaning here as well. Here's a reflection of Israel's relationship with the Lord. Uh, in Exodus, do you remember, God reached out in covenant love to His people. In Sinai, there was the coming together in holy agreement. The golden calf was their moment of loss. And as fellowship was fractured, the implications of that loss started to sink into the Hebrews. And they asked, what were we thinking? What would we do? How could we live without him? The alternative is just too horrible to contemplate. And that was a moment for Israel to think about just how important their relationship with God really was. And it raises the question for us too. Could it be that we simply take God's gracious covenant love too much for granted. Sure, he's there when we need him, but perhaps when he's asking something of me, then I'm too comfortable to be bothered, and we miss the moment. So this song, above all songs, operates then in a variety of ways at a number of different levels, both physically and spiritually. So that's point uh, number one, the pain of intimacy. The moment you are in a relationship, there is the possibility of loss. And since relationships are fragile, as far as we are able, it is imperative that we guard them as gently as we can. Married people, let's not take our spices for granted because one day they won't be there. And single people, don't suppose that even for one moment getting married will get rid of every conceivable problem that you have to face because that's simply not true. And engaged people, don't imagine that somehow you will be the exception to the rule. In every relationship this side of glory, there will inevitably be moments of darkness and tears and loss and pain. And that's the message of the fall, isn't it? As recorded in Genesis chapter 3, that is the reality and it is what is reflected here in this Song of Songs, chapter 5. The pain 
of intimacy. But thankfully, that's not where this song ends, and it's not the place we're going to end either, because now we're going to think about the privilege of intimacy. If last week was the pleasure of intimacy, uh, this week we've been thinking about the pain and now the privilege of intimacy. I shared last week that one of the books I was reading for my own edification is this one by Eugene Peterson. And here I'd like to read you the opening paragraph on his chapter on the Song of Songs, if I may. And this is what it says. She came to see me at the recommendation of a friend. She had been troubled for years seeing psychiatrists and not getting any better. The consultation had been arranged in the telephone so that when she walked into my study, it was a first meeting. Her opening statement was, well, I guess you want to know all about my sex life. That's what they always want to know. I answered, if that's what you want to talk about, I'll listen. What I would be really interested in finding out about, though, is your prayer life. She didn't think I was serious, but I was. I was interested in the details of her prayer life for the same reason her psychiatrist had been interested in the details of her sex life. To find out how she handled intimacy. I had to settle for the details of her sex life at that time. Sex was the only language she knew for describing relationships of intimacy. At a later time, when she came to understand herself in relationship to a personal God, she also learned the language of prayer. Well, I wonder what you think of that. Uh, does that surprise you? I confess, uh, over the last number of weeks, I've thought a lot about that uh, paragraph. Uh, and the more I've thought about it, the more I think I appreciate something of the deep truth uh, that Peterson is uh, talking about here. Because both sexuality and prayer have got to do with intimacy, with relationship. Both sexuality within marriage and prayer within marriage are deeply spiritual activities, sacred even. Now, that's not something that can easily be put into words, but interestingly enough, that was the very language used in the love letter I was privileged to be shown this past week. A family kindly showed me a letter they had found in their mom's Bible given to her by their dad, her husband, when he gave her a copy of the Scriptures as a token of their married love. And that was the precise word which he used in his letter to her when he talked about their intimate life, sacred. You've heard it said, couples who pray together stay together. And I think that there's a deeper truth to that saying than meets the eye. In fact, I'm sure there is. Because when couples pray together, 
That is an act of intense intimacy because it exposes the most precious and vulnerable part of what it is to be human. You're naked, as it were, before the Lord. Now, as with anything good, the devil can, of course, so easily twist and destroy what God intended as beautiful. And that's essentially why here in church we recommend prayer triplets and not prayer duets. And that's uh, one of the reasons why when somebody goes to prayer ministry, it is with two other people, not just one, because one-to-one prayer is both fantastically intimate but also potentially dangerous because one or other could so easily confuse spiritual intimacy for sexual intimacy and vice versa. Intimacy is a privilege, and both prayer and sexuality is opening yourself up to another, exposing your fragility and vulnerability, your inner self, your hopes and your dreams, your fears, your turmoils, And that's why when any form of a relationship becomes broken after such intimacy, the consequences can be so unbearably painful. Look at the language of the later part of chapter 5, verse 10. Do you see how she describes him? Uh, My love is radiant, uh, she says, and ruddy outstanding among 10,000. Who, by the way, does that description remind you of? King David. It's interesting, isn't it? King David is described in 1 Samuel 17 in very similar terms. Uh, Or verse 11. Do you see the poetry of, of verse 11? His head is pure as gold. His hair is wavy and black as raven, his eyes are like doves by the water streams, his legs as pillars of marble set in bases of pure gold. Does, does that make you think of King David's greater son as described in Revelation chapter 1, where it says, his hair and his head were white like wool, his eyes like burning fire, his feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, his voice like the sounds of rushing water. This is exceedingly powerful stuff because intimacy with a lover is beyond words. A relationship with a beloved like this almost defies description. And that's why, however well we understand our own or other people's love languages, as married people or as single, this song, unlike any other song, points beyond ourselves and points us to a king like no other, a king and a lover beyond anything merely mortal. And so we come back to where we began and uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Do you remember how the song started? 
Uh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Why is it more the delightful than wine? Uh, well, uh, it is as intoxicating, uh, but there's no hangover. That's why it's better. And uh, yes, there are moments, and there will be moments of difficulty and even trauma in this relationship, but look and see how the song ends in chapter 7, verse 9. It ends with a kiss that is every bit as sensuous as the one described in the chapter 1, verse 2. As the groom and the bride have got to know one another, as time has passed by, as they have spent time and worked out their problems and difficulties, as they've talked together, as they've prayed together, now they have an understanding that is deeper and more precious than words can ever express. Their love is every bit as intimate at the end of the song as at the beginning, if not more so. And this, of course, is the privilege of intimacy. Love through trials is even better than love before the trials. And some of you know that that's the case. Well, we're nearly done, but just before we finish, uh, there are simply two applications that I'd like to make this evening. And the first is for anyone tonight who would like to, but who in deepest honesty has never really enjoyed the intimacy of a spiritual relationship with the ultimate lover, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not yet a Christian. You've heard about him, but you've never really known him for yourself. But tonight you'd like to. Well, even as chapter 5, verse 2 speaks of the beloved knocking on the door of his bride and asking to enter. So interestingly enough, in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2, the Son of Man also speaks in this way. Here I am, he says. I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. How intimate is that? Only recently, somebody told me that they were aware that Christ was knocking real hard on the door of their life. That was their language. And I said, if somebody's knocking real hard on the door of your life, what should your response be? And the reply was, let him in. And they did. Well, is that something somebody here needs to do tonight? If you are aware of Christ knocking at the door of your life, let the beloved in. Enjoy intimacy. Enjoy a relationship of love with the beloved which this world can never give. 
but neither can it take away. So that's application number one. And if anybody is in that situation, come and speak with me. I've got this wee booklet, Just Grace, that will be helpful for you. And if that's our first application, the second one is this. It's for those who have known the beloved for a very long time. But to be truthful, life is now more like cohabitation with him than marriage. Living under the same roof with the Lord, but not really enjoying his company as once you did. To use the language of Revelation chapter 2, you've lost your first love. Well, if that's the case, listen again to the words of chapter 8, verse 14 in the song. Come away, my lover. Be like a gazelle, like a young stag on the spice-laden mountain. Come away, my beloved. Don't settle for less. Remember the love you once had. Refuse to compromise on your dreams. Come away, my lover. Enjoy all that the beloved has in store for you. Shall we pray? And so in the quietness, um, perhaps this is a moment, a a God-given moment to respond to him. For somebody who's been in the sphere of Christian faith, but in all honesty has never actually opened the door of your heart to let the Lord Jesus in. Well, Jesus says to you, I stand at the door of your life and knock. If you hear my voice, if you open the door, I will come in. I will eat with you and you with me. Perhaps you'd like to pray along with me these words into my heart, into my heart, into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today, come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. And if that is your earnest prayer, please share it with either myself or somebody sitting beside you this evening before you leave. And I for others, if truth be told, you've known the beloved for a long time, but things have settled down into boring routine. The intimacy gone. Do you know only too well your heart cannot be satisfied with cohabitation with the Lord? Nothing less than intimacy of covenant love will do. And so perhaps you will pray along with me. Gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, where my heart has become cold, Warm me with your sacrificial love. 
where my mind has become distracted. Woo me with your selfless affection. Where my feelings have become distant, draw me by your infinite grace into your intimate life. Stir up within me a desire to pray and a self-giving love that will reach out to other people, people from whom I've become alienated, colleagues at work, spouse, or family members. As you embrace me in your arms, please, Lord, enable me to respond with every part of me in glad surrender. And all I ask is in the name and for the sake of the one who is altogether lovely. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, and to his name be glory and praise. Amen.